reading Ephesians 1, verses 11 to 23. Ephesians 1, verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation, so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of God.
What's it like to see your loved ones depart for war, maybe never to be seen again? And of course, the most shocking tales are those that see the annihilation of loved ones before their very eyes. But before we direct our rage just one way, I have deep sympathy for those Russian soldiers too, those who have no idea what they're doing, those who have been killed because they were unwilling to attack. It's hard not to feel sympathy for the Russian people too because their economy has apocalyptically nosedived in the last 10 days. Its share market has been frozen for five days straight, losing 30% in the first day. Their currency, the ruble, is worth less than one US cent, worse than in the prime of its 90s inflation, and interest rates are skyrocketing. The sadness, but then there is rage, isn't there? Rage at the injustice and the wickedness of Russian leadership, their bloodthirst, their wanton disregard for human life. There's rage at Western decision-making over the last 30 years, where they have, to say the least, made some pretty terrible decisions in that Eastern Bloc. And then there's guilt. The guilt that I feel, perhaps you do, that there is this injustice, a grave injustice being done out there, and there's nothing that I can or that I am doing about it. Guilt that I felt on Friday night as I debated which Uber Eats to go with, and there's Ukrainians debating whether or not to stay or go, flee or die. And then there's that particular, peculiar Christian guilt for, for not praying enough, for checking my news feed more frequently than I check in with the big man upstairs. But it's not just rage, it's not just guilt, it's also fear, I think. What's going to happen in the long run? Will it be, as it appears, that Russia will continue its slow but inexorable march and take both east and west, all of Ukraine, and, and then what next? Where will the conflict spill to? We might comfort ourselves thinking that we are the remotest city in the world, that we live in, in an island surrounded by the most vast moat that you can imagine, but that didn't stop us from the calamity that was World War I and Two, did it? That was before the advent of nuclear warfare. And then there's the fear because of that massive leadership vacuum in the West that who's bold enough to stand up to Russia? And will this embolden China to take Taiwan? And then America is the world's first genuine worldwide superpower. Are they on the brink? Will they soon be overtaken by China or by the Chinese-Russian, the so-called dragon-bear alliance? Who holds the keys to the future? Who will come out on top? Who will reign supreme? But these emotions, this rage, this guilt, this fear, these questions of existential threat, none of them are new. They are as old as civilization herself. I think what is new, what is unique, what is particular and peculiar is that we've lived in a sheltered, insulated age. 
We have been disconnected from these deep questions that most cultures for most of their existence have been asking all the time. It seems a little callous to make the point, but I'll make it nonetheless, that one positive upshot of this circumstance, one benefit of us being reacquainted with normal human experience and existence, that uncertainty about future, that fear, the question of who holds the reins of power, it means that we are closer to the city that we are looking at this afternoon, the city that that Paul wrote his letter to, the city of Ephesus, which is in uh, modern-day Turkey. Because ancient Ephesus was a city like most pagan cities that was driven by twin competing impulses, driven by fear and the pursuit of power. And if if you don't know much about ancient Ephesus, which probably most of us don't, It's interesting to read that it was the center of Roman power in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The Roman Empire ruled the the modern, uh, sorry, the the ancient known world as we refer to it, and in ancient Turkey and Asia Minor, it ruled in large part from Ephesus. It had great political prestige and power as a port city, but it also had immense religious power. All sorts of cults and beliefs flourished there. Not least the worship of one of the 12 great gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon, Artemis, goddess of the hunt. She had a magnificent temple in Ephesus. And she and her, her brother, Apollos, the god of war, Apollos and Artemis were known for their ferocity, their potency and their power. And she was a a kind of perfect emblem for the city of Ephesus, which had a particular fascination, not just with Artemis, but also with the power of magic. Power to make things happen in the world beyond nature, tapping into the supernatural, supernature, whether it be blessing or curse, wealth or wreckage. But there is a flip side to this pursuit of power, and that is terror. The city of Ephesus and the individuals within her were a fearful people. They feared that their cultural influence would wane. They feared that the wealth of that immense port city would dissipate. They they feared that the magic that they were trying to control would be directing against them, that it would be curses, not blessings. And you might be wondering, well, how on earth, how on earth do, you, do you know that, Matt? Well, actually, you don't need to read outside of the Bible. You can read the, the letter of Ephesians, and as we read it, you'll see how much of the supernatural of powers and authorities of fear is at work. But you can also see it back in Acts. If you don't know that the New Testament, which is the bit about Jesus, the first four books of the Gospels, which you probably know, the fifth book is the book of Acts, which records kind of the, the early history of the church. And a lot of Acts is concerned with the guy writing this letter, the Apostle Paul, his, his missionary journeys, as we call them, his traipsing around the Greco-Roman world, converting people. And in Acts chapter 19, which is kind of two-thirds of the way through that book, Paul rocks up in Ephesus. 
So not only do we have the letter he wrote to the church, we have the history of his time at the church, which is quite amazing. And as you read his history, you see how much of fear, power, and magic come up time and time again. Uh, If you've got a Bible, flip to Acts 19. I'm going to read just a few verses, and it's going to buy me some time to get some water. Acts 19. Acts 19, and just a little snippet, verses 17 to 20. So chapters are the big big numbers, 19, big number, and then verses are the small, verses 17 to 20. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. It's millions of dollars. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Paul's visit to Ephesus was a power encounter because it was a culture driven by fear and power. In fact, this is, this is usually the time of the sermon where I kind of take a step to the side and try and wake you up again, but I can't do that, so I'm just going to have to do that from here. Uh, if, you, if you read anything about sociology or anthropology, which are big words to talk about people who study other peoples and other societies... Uh, sociologists and anthropologists, they talk about a division in world cultures. There's three types, actually. You may may know of two of them. You may not have heard of the third. So the first type is called a shame-honor culture. These are uh, cultures that are driven and then, in terms of power dynamics, controlled by feelings of shame and aspirations of honor. Uh, This will often be seen in, in Eastern cultures. So you've got shame, honor. You've also got guilt-innocence cultures where people are, are driven by their feelings of guilt, their desire to be acquitted, be called innocent. And, and Western culture, our culture, has historically been that culture. In fact, it's only in a culture like ours where what I said earlier, you remember I talked about being feeling guilty about what's happening in the Ukraine? It's basically only in our culture where that feeling of guilt associated with events that have nothing to do with me in a part of the world that couldn't be farther from me, makes any sense at all. Encounter someone who's never been to a Western culture, who doesn't know the guilt-innocence dynamic, that make absolutely no sense of my feelings of guilt right now. So that's shame, honor, guilt, innocence. But there's a third culture. It's called a, a fear-power culture, where the controlling impulse and emotion is one to avoid fear or not feel fear and to have power. And yeah, all cultures are kind of mixed between the three. I I understand. But one generally tends to dominate. And in Ephesus, so the anthropologists, the sociologists, and I think you can kind of get it from the pages of the Bible, the fear-power dynamic dominates. And you can kind of deduce that from reading the Scriptures because Paul talks about power in this letter, the letter to the Ephesians, more than he does in any of his other, I think, 14 letters that he writes, at least kind of proportionally to the size. 
Time and time again, Paul will talk about the power of Christ. And you see it clearly for the first time in our verses. So let me read verses 18 to 21 and just kind of have your ears kind of pricked for that, for that conversation. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. If you know the New Testament, you'll know that this is one of the most elaborate, the most provocative descriptions of the authority of Christ anywhere in the Bible. But not just the power of Christ, also the power of His Father, God the Father, in raising Christ from the dead. In fact... If you could make a metric, a way of measuring God's power, uh, which I know is absurd, okay, so hear me out, not, not advocating someone spends their life trying to do that. But if you could kind of invent a machine that could kind of have a Richter scale for the power of God, I think in Paul's mind, what would top the charts as the expression of God's greatest might and power is actually not creation not speaking meaning and matter, life and substance into existence. No, actually, I think in Paul's mind it would be new creation, resurrection. It is God's power to wrest His Son from the clutches of death, to draw Him out of the darkness of the abyss, and then to raise Him, not just to earth, but then through the heavenly realms, to be seated far above all power and authority at His Father's right hand. Above every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. I think for Paul, that is God's mightiest act of might. And so Paul wants, Paul wants the Ephesians, the, the men and women, the boys and girls of Ephesus. Those people that daily walk the streets of that port city that look up and see the magnificent temple of Artemis, a temple kind of pulsating with tantalizing promises of power, and then that see on every street corner magicians and practitioners of the mystery cults that promise secret knowledge and secret powers. You see, he can kind of see through their eyes. He's, he lived there for two years. He can see the allure of that power. He can see the fear that that type of power wielded against you might ferment in your heart. And he, he says to his brothers and sisters, he says, boys and girls of Ephesus, don't panic. Don't fear what they fear. Stop with your vain attempts to pursue power, to try and control things. 
See, brothers and sisters, I've been away from you for a time, but have you forgotten the master that you now serve? Have you remembered who the Lord Jesus Christ is, brothers and sisters? You see, he's without competitor. He's without rival. Artemis. In the words of the Hulk, she's a puny god. You see, you're with Jesus now. You see, and his power and his authority is transdimensional. It kind of exhausts your mental faculties. It kind of eclipses your, your, your tiny imaginations. And he's sure as heck eclipses all other alternatives. In fact, here's a, here's a kind of a little known fact. That the most common command in the Bible... Hmm. Actually, hands up. Who thinks they know what the most common command in the Bible is? I know you know. Simon. Fear not. Simon also knows, Andrew. Fear not. And why is that the most common command in the Bible? Well, partly, well, mainly, okay, because it's true. You don't need to fear. But God needs to keep on saying it because we forget. We either forget that he's good and he's working for our good, or we forget that he's in control and we try and control things. And that's been me this week. It's time for individual, not corporate confession. As I watched far too much of footage of Ukraine being shelled into oblivion, as I fretted and feared about our church's relocation, as Mandy and I spoke about Omicron catching fire in Perth, I have not rested in Christ's inexhaustible power. I have relied on my own meagre, dwindling power, and in doing so, I have exhausted myself. I have railed at my inability to control the most simple things at this point in time. And because of that, I've been a bad husband and an even worse father. And last night, I realized this and I confessed to my Father in Heaven who forgave me. And this morning at breakfast, I confessed to my wife and my kids and apologized. See, don't be like Matt. Don't forget who Christ is and where Christ is seated. He's the one in control. And even when we can't possibly fathom how he could be in control, we must remember that, of course, we can't. We're puny humans. Trust his track record. Trust his goodness, his love, and his mercy, even when we can't see how he's weaving that through the wreckage of our lives and our time. But that doesn't mean that we're passive. You see, acknowledging that Christ Jesus is on the throne doesn't mean we stop sending funds to Ukraine. Doesn't mean we don't take wise steps to avoid COVID. Doesn't mean I don't walk the mean streets of Vic Park until we find a church. No, we do all those things. 
But we do so without the taint of fear, without the dread and the anxiety that comes from people thinking that need to control their destiny. Because God's got us, and we know He's got us because He says He's got us, but also we know because we have His power within us. I'll repeat that because that's our final little point. That's kind of our concluding point. God's got us. We know He's got us because we read in His Word that He's got us, but also because His power is within us. In fact, that's one of Paul's major points here, that God's power is within for us. Have a look at verse 18 again. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. The riches of His glorious inheritance in His holy people. And now, main point here, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. And His incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ from the dead. So remember what I said, uh, kind of off the Richter scale, power of God is not creation but probably resurrection. And now Paul's saying that same resurrection power, and if you do the work you'll see it's the work of the Spirit, but we don't have time to see that. But all we need to know is that same resurrection power is actually at work within us who are Christian. The greatest power in the universe is within us as Christians. And Paul says, therefore, for the Ephesian to worry about the the wrath of Artemis, to be fearful of the fury's curse, for the the threat of the Parthian invasion, the the rumors of famine, Christ says, "Don't, don't fear, God's got you, and God's in you, His power too. Now, I love, um, I love stories of magic, uh, if, I'm, I'm, if I'm honest. I know that would have me kicked out of some Southern Baptist churches, but let me own it. I love stories about magic. If I'm honest, particularly stories about wizards and dragons. As you can imagine, I was one of the cool kids at school. <laughs> Keeping the girls off me was a mission. Uh, and without doubt, my favourite s- scene in any show, book, movie, is the scene, and they all have them, where the wizard, the hero, the magician, is on the brink of being annihilated by their arch nemesis. Usually happens about 70 minutes into the film, of a 90-minute film, maybe 75 minutes. Third, last chapter often. But as they're getting pummeled, as it looks like they are toast, Something kind of clicks. It's often a memory of loved ones, wise words they've heard or promises spoken. And then like that, we all know it happens, don't we? The fight turns 180. For the first time, they know their power, know what they are capable of, and they lay waste to their opponents. And we've seen it nine on a thousand times and we still get the kind of cool tingly feeling in our skin. That, that's kind of the hinge of the plot. It's a common enough device that you can call it that or the, the turning point that's kind of prescripted. 
and yet we fall for it because it's glorious. We fall for it because that, that, that is woven into the DNA of existence because it's exactly what happened at the cross. Just at the moment where it looked like Satan and his minions and sin and death had triumphed, Christ conquers. But I want to take a step beyond that now. And I want to say that I think most Christians, most Christians live and die missing that turning point. That is, they live and they die unaware of the power that God has given them through His Spirit. And so they live kind of lukewarm, tepid, faint-hearted lives. Almost the hero, but never quite. Now, I've got to clarify a few things with that comment. The power that God gives us, it's not often displayed in the way that we'd like it to be. It's unfortunately not the power to slay dragons, to shoot firebolts, nor is it the power to make money, win friends, influence people. That's, that's not what's promised. It's a, uh, as the scholar N.T. Wright puts it, it's a hidden and often quiet power. But it's actually all the more glorious because of it. We, we don't get to slay make-believe dragons, but we do get to slay the demons that wage war in our hearts. It isn't the power to be some hero on a mythic quest in a realm unknown. It's about that power to do something far more mundane, but far harder and far more glorious. It's the power to be genuinely human. To be holy, to be whole, to be righteous, to be kind, to be patient, to be the people that God made us to be. A person who bears the shattered image of Adam, but restored through the power of the Spirit so that we can reflect who God is truly. The power to have broken hearts made whole, of wounded souls stitched by the silver lining of the Spirit. You see, the power to destroy comes easy enough. The power to remake, far, far harder, far, far stronger that power. And this isn't the power, of course, to gain earthly riches that moth and rust destroy. But nor is it, actually, the power to gain heavenly riches. It's not about grasping at all. It's about comprehending. It's about seeing truly what we already have. The power, yes, that we have, but also the inheritance. Have a look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. See that the eyes of your hearts might be enlightened. Paul knows that 
the eyes of our heart are blind. And he prays that we might have the eyes to see, kind of like a supernatural x-ray vision, if you want to call it that, that we might see what we have in Christ. Even if we glimpse the kind of thinnest of slivers, kind of the tiniest fraction of that glorious inheritance. We only need to see a little bit because it's a glory so potent that it'll remake the world. It's a promise of pleasure so overwhelming that it erases the hurt, comfort so sweet that it wipes away the tears of the eye. And it's a unity so solid that all the fissures and fractures of this age will be formed as one. And to end, Paul prays for this because he knows that we as human beings, we are hope-based life forms. We're hope-based life forms. What drives us, what compels us, impels us, is our vision of hope. Hope of earthly pleasure, worldly achievements, fleshly experience. That's what our, the, the tune of our world, that's the rhythm that we dance to. And Paul knows that we won't Stop living for those things. We won't stop driving down those streets to get to those dark alleys where we get those pleasures if we don't have an alternative. The threat of punishment, the feeling of guilt, of shame, that's not enough to stop us pursuing those damnable things. In the words of Thomas Chalmers, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. We need a a greater love, a higher love. We need a hope of eternal pleasures, of divine experience. And we need to keep looking at that. That is the thing that will drive us, that will sustain us, that will keep us going. Let me end with a little story. Uh, Mandy and I this week, uh, or actually a few weeks ago now, uh, bought a house, which is really exciting. It's a lovely little house. And, and we broke one of the, the, the kind of the taboos of house purchases. Uh, we met the owners. Uh, we did that for two reasons. One, friends of ours are friends of theirs, and we knew they were lovely people. And two, this is the real reason, they were doing a garage sale, and we figured most of their stuff works in their house. We probably want it for our house. And it works. We've got a bunch of their stuff that's staying there. It's great. And it is a, it's a lovely little house. Um, and I did, I did ask, you know, so where are you moving to? And they told me they're, they're, moving, they're moving down south. Uh, but they're, leaving, they're, they're moving to a vacant plot of land. I'm like, cool story. Um, so where, where are you, you going to be living? Like, motels are cheap, but not for two years. And they said, well, actually, we're going to live uh, in a camper van. There's five of them. I'm like, you're going to live in a camper van. And she said, yeah, one to two years. Wow. I mean, I hate camper vanning, so I can't do it for like two hours, but one to two years. And I was like, well, what's, you know, what's going to, how, how are you, you going to do that? And the answer is, is that next to the camper van will be the slab of their new house. And then it'll be the superstructure. And then it'll be the roof. And then it'll be all the interior fixtures and fittings. And every morning they wake up in what will become a hellhole of a caravan, I'm sure. The thing that will sustain them is the promise of that house right there. 
of the relief, the pleasure, the delight. And Paul knows, and our Lord knows, that some of our lives are like the hellhole of a campervan. Some of our lives are incredibly hard, not just on the streets of Ukraine. And he knows that what will sustain us, what will motivate and compel us, is the promise of a better house. A better moment, an eternal moment, where grief is gone, pain is gone, suffering is gone. Where joy and fellowship last forever. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness, your grace, your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please hear these words now from our apostle. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion in every name that is invoked, and not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet, appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in every way. Amen.